I love being a part of a Pentecostal church. Now, let me let me clarify, because I have to. We talked about this as small group uh, this this past week, but we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Spirit's descent, not only uh, way back 2,000 years ago when the church began, but even this morning, we believe the Spirit can descend into our lives to give us power from on high to live out the Gospel, the good news, the, the mission that Jesus left us with at the end of the Gospels. We believe that can happen. And I hear it when, when Todd says, you know, I feel these promptings. The Holy Spirit. When I hear in our in our time before we have a group that meets, and you're very welcome to join us at 9:45 each morning uh, that we have service here on Sundays, we're, we meet back here, and I hear people asking the Spirit for help and for power from on high. So again, I say with with a little clarification that I am so glad that we are a part of a church that is Pentecostal. In, in that sense that we are focused on the Spirit and the gifts that He wants to bring to us. So we, uh, we invite you, if you've never, you know, some people get freaked out by the Holy Spirit, you shouldn't. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God. You have to have the Spirit. <laughs> you have to be filled with the Spirit if you're going to be a Christian. And so we must seek His infilling. Alright, turn with me to the Spirit's book, uh, and that is Joshua and chapter 5. The Spirit's book being the Bible because the Scripture actually says that the Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so who better to help us out than the Spirit this morning as we read just just a a couple verses here uh, from Joshua. Notice in Joshua 5, and maybe you're familiar with Joshua. Most most people may be familiar uh, maybe just at at a children's story level with with some of the events in Joshua, I always kind of find it funny. I have to just say this. You know, we, we sometimes pick these different stories to put in children's books. But have you ever read Joshua? <laughs> uh, there's quite a bit of bloodshed in Joshua. And just like, you know, I'm thinking Noah's Ark always makes it into children's stories. I'm thinking, you kind of know what happened there, right? Like, have you ever stopped and think about that? Everybody died. Except for one family. And... And those protected under the ark. So, anyway, just just an aside. Sometimes the children's books uh, we have to we have to let them stand, but we have to also get into the adult side of things. And this is what we're doing this morning. Notice Joshua chapter five. We're going to actually pick up uh, reading here in this narrative. And this is I'll remind you one of uh, really the first of what we call the historical books within the Old Testament. So you have the Pentateuch, the first five books, and now we begin with the historical books that, uh, that will start with Joshua. Notice 5 and 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? 
And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray. Lord, we need a word from you. We've said that. We're saying it again. You gave a word to Joshua when he needed your voice in his life. We pray now for that same voice to speak this morning. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As no doubt you saw for yourself this week, police officers, as others were running away from the gunfire, they were running toward it. We've seen this before. See this on the battlefield when they used to pipe in images in Vietnam of soldiers running toward it, toward the smoke. We've seen it 9-11 where firefighters were going up the stairs rather than down the stairs, toward danger rather than away from it. And it's always a sobering thing to see that someone would be willing to put aside their natural inclination to protect themselves, to save themselves for their family for the sake of somebody else's family. It's an honorable thing, and it's something that in a a different way, but nonetheless, the same sort of honorableness Christians are called to do to the decay and darkness of our world. So some of us are not trained in firearms. That's all right. Some of us are not trained uh, to run into a burning building. That's okay. But as Christians, we must all be trained on how to go into the decay of our society how to burrow ourselves deep inside what is decaying. Isn't that what salt was used for? We've talked about it multiple times and I nonetheless see it now more than ever clearly that we must get rubbed in deep into our society, deep into our local situations and cultures so we can be rubbed in to preserve rather than watch as the world burns. We, as Christians, are called when darkness comes, when the very face of evil is present, we're called to go in and be light. Not to run. Not to hide. Not to put our head in the sand. There's really just two options. You can go and and go the cowardly way of, of going and hiding Or you can stand and fight. And Christians are called in this spiritual battle that we are in. We are called to stand and fight. So was Joshua, wasn't he? This physical battle that Joshua is placed in charge of really is symbolic for us Christians of the spiritual warfare that we face. And we could sit here and nuance and we could do it, but it'd take too much time, so we're not, about the differences here between the Quran and its call for jihad 
and the Christians call for holy war. Because we too agree that there is a war going on. But the means by which we wage this war is very different. Our founder never wielded the sword. Our founder never killed anyone, but rather was tortured himself and killed. And then he says, by the way, if you want to follow me, pick up your own torture device, your own cross, your own execution device, and follow me. It's the only way is to lay down your life, not to try to preserve it, to save it, to hide it. Jesus says you'll you'll surely lose it if you try to save it. It's like trying to save milk. Say, boy, this is a nice gallon of chocolate milk. I really like it. It's one of the better ones I've had. I'm going to save it for a month. It's not going to work. It's got to be... Got to be drank, drunk, whatever, drunk. Yes, it's got to be drunk. Uh, It has to be used. And you know what? In our Christian life, we're to be used. Amen. Not just saved up. Holiness is not being some statue of perfection. It's not what we're called to be. We're called to be poured out for others. And so here is a narrative that is really just now cranking up. In, in Joshua. We have really a death, and we've had much death this week, not only personally, but nationally, we've had just death. And, it's, and it's, it really, it's weighed on me. It's weighed on you. You know, this is, this is something that's, that's tough for us to see. As I, as I attended last uh, Sunday, just a week ago, a casket this, this big was laid before us with a child that had her that had her little hand wrapped around a little lamb. And as I looked at her in that in that casket, she looked like she was sleeping. And you know it's in moments like that where where as a pastor and as a father, you actually don't sometimes you don't really know what to say. You just have to weep with those who weep. But just like Jeremiah, the Word of God is shut up in my bones and I couldn't, could not, not speak at that place. And I said, just as she looks like she's sleeping, the Scripture tells us that she is. Because this body, her body, this little tender, innocent body will one day rise again. And that's my hope as a Christian. We do not weep as those who have lost all hope. We have hope even in the midst of tragedy. Why? Because Jesus came into the midst of tragedy and brings hope to the very thing that causes us the most tragedy, which is death. He takes the enemy's greatest weapon and He actually takes it into Himself and uses it for good. And His death accomplishes more than a bunch of slayings can ever accomplish. He didn't come with weaponry made with man's hands. He came with an attitude and a character that followed the Spirit. And as I attended two other funerals, one of a man that sat here with us 
in this family of God, Jerome. And thought about his life and reflected upon his life. And of course, Jesse's grandmother as well. And in the national tragic history, I thought, really, I had to just stop and ask the Lord, Lord, I need a word this Sunday. I need a word from the commander because I'm not in charge. And I need a word from my upline. And he said, go to Joshua. You know, Joshua also experienced death, didn't he? Moses, you know, if you go back and read Deuteronomy and other, other books of the, of the Pentateuch, you'll see that Moses is actually training Joshua. Um, and he's, you know, Joshua's right there at the tent of meeting, standing right outside of it. He goes up onto the mountain when nobody else is allowed to go up on the mountain with Moses. Uh, he at least goes halfway up. I mean, there's, there's little hints here and there that this, was, this man was being groomed to be the next leader. And, you know, here's his leader that fails him. <laughs> you know, Moses fails him, uh, strikes the rock twice, is not allowed to go into the promised land. That was not the plan, by the way. Moses was headed into the promised land. He was the one who was supposed to lead him into the promised land. And now the plan has been cut short because that's what death always does, doesn't it? Cut us short. There's never a good time to die. Even for older people, you still think, still not a good time to die. And so Joshua has experienced death, and now he faces problems. Problems of leadership, problems of the enemy, problems of how in the world is this going to happen, problems of self-confidence. You read chapter 1, as soon as the book begins, God is giving Joshua a pep talk. And his main focus is this. I am with you. Therefore, be strong and courageous. Be very strong and very courageous. Why? Because I'm with you. Psalm 23 is often read at funerals, and rightly so, because one of the key verses in there is we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but the reason we don't fear is why. He is with us. And you'll see it played out through the entire Bible, through every single story. God is with us. And the beautiful thing is, because of Pentecost, God is in us. That's why Jesus said, you know what? I have got to go because I'm going to send another who is not just going to be with you, but in you. Pentecost. The coming of the Spirit. And so here's Joshua along with the people of Israel and he's newly in charge and he has a huge battle before him. They've already scoped out the land, you remember. Joshua was one of the spies that actually came back and said, we can still take it with the Lord's help. Even though, even though everybody else said, hey, we're like grasshoppers compared to these people. They're huge. They're Goliath. They're mammoth. And not only that, they have this huge wall. Doesn't that oftentimes sound like the way you would describe your problems in your life? Mammoth, Goliath, huge walls. There's sometimes are barriers that we just cannot see a way around them. That's all right. 
It's not up to us. The battle is the Lord's. If He wants us to go through those walls, He has a plan. He doesn't always let us know that plan. Chain of command, right? Jericho was the problem, and it was a, an obvious problem. It was a strategic city within Canaan. I mean, Jericho would have been like coming and trying to destroy America. Well, the first place you're going to need to hit is like New York City or Los Angeles. You're going to, I mean, if you can take one of those down, Decatur doesn't seem so big, right? And this is exactly what Jericho was for the Canaanites. Which is why the Scripture will say later that when it falls, they lose heart. Literally, their hearts melt in the Hebrew. God had a strategic plan. Now, I will warn you that God's plan is not always conventional. Can we say that? Using a little warfare terminology? It's not always conventional. What I mean by that is, is God says, actually at the beginning of chapter 5 here, He says, Joshua, I want you to get your guys ready. You know, Joshua was a general. I mean, he's, he's about to lead an army into, into, into Canaan. I want you to get your army ready. You would think that they'd be going out doing drills, you know, making sure they have enough ammo, sharpening all their, all their knives and spears and getting their horses ready and fed. And instead... Uh, Joshua circumcises the men. Does that sound like a good battle plan to you? <laughs> Let's take all your fighting men, Joshua. I want you to circumcise them. Yeah, that's really going to get us ready, God. You know? Top performance. Post-operative, right? Because ritual... Might we say, as I introduced to you the other week, liturgical purity is more important than human power or weaponry. Amen. God will do this several times to Joshua, won't He? Remember they're going up against a big group of fighters and He says, reduce your army. Reduce your army. Reduce your army. That's not really conventional thinking. <laughs> You want to surge, right? Surge is work, right? Not in God's plan. God wanted to show them that He was actually giving them the land. They weren't conquering the land. Amen. We oftentimes talk about, oh, this is the conquest of the land. And really our terminology is off because God made it very clear that He was going to take the initiative on giving them the land not on their power and strength. And he starts with one of the most sensitive places on the male body. And he says, that's mine. And you better put your mark on that because that's the covenant and the sign of the covenant that I have with Israel. Male circumcision. Yikes. Then, after that, I have to move on because I have many stories to tell you about this. Um, of teaching times and certain settings. Um, people passing out, people waking up from a sleep at that very moment. But nonetheless, we, we digress. The next thing they do after circumcision to get ready for warfare is have a liturgical meal. The Passover meal. 
You remember this? God had told them, when you leave the land, I want you to have a meal to remember what I did when I passed over you and I executed justice upon the Egyptians and I delivered you. I want you to remember that by having a meal. Now, does this kind of stuff sound familiar to you as a Christian? Because it sounds a lot like to me, baptism and the Eucharist. Baptism now is the sign of our covenant with God. Just as circumcision was the sign of the covenant of God in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, baptism is. In other words, in order to get ready for a fight, be baptized. Remember your baptism. Understand your identity in Christ as you go down with Him and come up with Him from death to new life. And then, remember Jesus in the Eucharist. Eucharist meaning thanksgiving. This meal of thanksgiving. Holy communion. The Last Supper. The Lord's Supper. And then, there's a third thing that happens before we get to our narrative that we just read. Is God says, okay, the man has stopped. Start planting. Start producing. Because you're going to eat from now on from the land. So, Right when the Passover is over, God says, all right, no more, no more manna. Now it's time for you to take personal responsibility. All these three things would have handicapped them, right? Ritual purity for Passover required circumcision. And so also this meal now, they're no longer getting just free food <laughs> coming from heaven. Now it's going to be from the toil of their own hand. And God says, okay, now I think you're ready. So you can imagine why Joshua's out the night before they go in, you know, probably can't sleep, right? And he's looking for a word. He's looking for confirmation. Are we really ready, post-operative guys? All we've done is a bunch of liturgy, which seems like nothing, doesn't it? Which seems like a bunch of nothing, doesn't it, sometimes? Sometimes we come to church and we're like, what are we really doing here? I mean, honestly, we're singing along, we're doing these things. But what are we really... You know what? It changes your life because you're bumping into the things that God has told us to do. Amen. You're bumping... It's not conventional. Just like the Scripture reading from Deuteronomy. It's not so high up that you can't do it. Somebody's got to go get it for you. It's right here on your lips. It's in your heart. It's right on your... Do it. It's right here. We overcomplicate sometimes. No, do it. And so here he is. Joshua's out uh, sort of the night before they go in to take Jericho. And he meets this man. Did you catch this? Notice... And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, of course, Joshua's a fighter. He's a, he's a general. So his, his natural question, of course, is going to be, Hey, whoa, whoa, now, why are you on our premises? Are you for us or are you against us? Don't you love his answer? No. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? People try to say, Jesus, are you either this or that? Neither. 
Now, he's not just trying to be political. He's being God. Because this is not just a man. This is God in an epiphany. We oftentimes actually use theophany to mean just sort of an appearing of God. Technically, a theophany is where something big and miraculous happens uh, when God shows up like with the uh, three men that come to Abraham and then go to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a theophany. Here, this is more of an epiphany. He's here to encourage Joshua. This is literally the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, before Jesus, who is the Son of God, takes on flesh in Mary for all time, He comes in the flesh like a man in an appearing, in an epiphany, in a showing. And He has His sword drawn. And He's ready for battle. But He's here to take charge. He's not here to take sides. Isn't that something we need to hear today? We've all done it. We see some crisis event, something that's atrocious, and we begin to paint broad strokes, don't we? All of them. They all do this. They all do that. Generalizations. Lies. All Muslims. All African Americans. All police. These are not helpful. We're called to go into the decay. We're called to have words that are seasoned with salt. Even in our thought life. Isn't it fascinating in the New Testament? God goes straight to the issue of even our thought life. Don't even think it. Change the way you think. Renew your mind in the Spirit. It's not an either-or sort of thing. It's not us against them. Remember what we've been saying for the past few weeks? Sin runs right through all of us. I think if you were asked Jesus, which side are you on 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 this whole matter? No. No. takes command. Isn't that his name here? He's the commander of the Lord's host. He's not here to take sides. The same God that is allowing the Israelites to be the tool of his justice against the Canaanites will then turn that same tool to the round to the Babylonians being the tool for the judgment of the Israelites later. He has no political sides. He has His own kingdom though. That He's the King of kings over all politics. Over all governments. Love the way Isaiah says it in in his messianic way. The government is upon Him. Upon His shoulders. He, He carries the weight of the world. He doesn't get compartmentalized like we do having our preferences and our opinions. He's above that and beyond that. And here, Joshua thinks, oh yeah, you know, we got to get pumped up. It's us against them. God says, no. 
These are all my people. These are all my creation. And yes, God is a God of justice. 100%. You can see it all throughout Scripture. And yet at the same time, He's a God of love. You say, how, how can you say that, Rahab? A prostitute, Canaanite, and she's the only one who survives Jericho's fall and her family? You ever notice how important associations are? Never says that Noah's family was righteous, but it definitely says Noah was, and his family was saved because of it. Doesn't say anything about Rahab's family believing in the God of the Israelites, but it certainly says that they were saved because of her belief in God. Associations are important. That's why God wants to rub us in to His world. I cook a pretty good steak and I actually have a butt rub that I use. And I rub it into that steak. And it seasons it. That's what God wants to do with your life. He wants to flavor those around you with the gospel by using you. That means we're going to need to be rubbed into different situations. Situations that you're not comfortable with sometimes, that are unconventional. We need to be light to darkness, not join in with the darkness. Hate is not going to accomplish anything. Pointing fingers is not going to accomplish... If it was, then God would say, yeah, that's right, let's, let's, let's kill all these Canaanites and then the world will be better. It's not going to be better. It's not going to be better. Sometimes the tool for justice becomes evil. We think we're doing something good when in fact we're causing much evil in the world. God hates all evil no matter if it's coming from His elect special people or not. And God sees your heart. There's much to be said about our nation, our times that we live in. But rather than trying to give a particular answer to the problems we face, the Spirit wants to use you. He doesn't want me to sit up here and pontificate on what I think needs to be done. He wants to speak to your heart. He wants to use you in your family. He wants to use you at your work. That's how He... If it wasn't, then this right here would be our political guide to how we make it through this election. It's not. Instead, what is most important? God with us. God in us. That is what is most important. It's okay to say, I don't have the answers. When you're looking at a mother who just lost her baby, you don't offer answers. There are no answers. If we were supposed to offer answers, Jesus would come as some kind of answering machine in His life, and He did not. But you know what He did? He was moved to action. 
He was moved to compassion. And He was willing to lay down His life for even people that hated Him. Because He knows the most powerful weapon in all of the world that can topple whole governments, create huge movements and ripples in this world, that can literally quake the foundations that the enemy has set up, his structures of defense, the walls of Jericho, is not human power, but divine love. Amen. From on high, a Spirit-filled life. That's all he's asking. He's not at. Thanks be to God, he's not asking us to figure out the whole political thing. Thank you, God. We don't have to play the game if we don't want to, but we must be filled with the Spirit. We must walk in the Spirit. Our talk must be seasoned with salt when everybody else is spewing decay. Spewing darkness. We must bring our little light. At Jerome's funeral, one of the last things that was said was when a Christian dies and their lamp goes out, it's only because the dawn has come. And one day, Breaking over the horizon. <laughs> sort of just like in Lord of the Rings when, when the whole crew comes over with the king. They break over. The, you remember Gandalf comes and the light shines and it's over. The battle is over. One day, my friends, Tolkien saw something that the Scriptures speak about, which is a day when warfare will end. Killing will end. And the Bible says through the prophets that we'll be beating our swords into plows rather than warfare upon each other. But until that day comes, we must hold our light. It doesn't matter how small it is. Even if it's just a flicker, in dark times, even a little light is a lot. <coughs> Jericho is huge, but Jesus is greater. So, we must be like Joshua. Do you know what Joshua means? Jesus. That's actually the Hebrew. If you transliterate Jesus' name from Greek to Hebrew, it's, it's Joshua. Actually, Moses, the Bible tells us, changed Joshua's name. It used to be Hosea. Then he changed to Joshua, which one just means salvation, but then he added Yahweh to it. Yahweh is salvation, which is exactly what Jesus means. Joshua is the new Moses but Jesus is the newest and best Moses because He leads us out of Egypt and all the way up to God in heaven. Joshua can only lead us into the promised land. Jesus leads us the rest of the way through. How did Joshua do this? Very simply. Very simply. It wasn't... Again, it did, he, he, we already talked about his obedience. Unconventional obedience. Circumcising past baptism, let's just translate it for us, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Well, he also does these two things in our text this morning. He falls down and worships. 
That's how we actually know this is not just an angel. This is God. Because anytime you fall down and try to worship an angel, angel says, no, 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 up, up, up. But instead here, He allows them to do it. When's the last time you fell on your face and worshiped Jesus? I don't mean in your heart. I mean for real. One of the things I appreciate about the Catholic Church and some other more liturgical churches is you are up and down. You're up and down. Kneeling. When's the last time you really kneeled before God and said, Lord, You're my commander? When you really, fe- when, when you've really felt like the only thing you could do was fall on your face. If it's been a while, why not today? Amen. We even have nice cushiony places for you to do that. <laughs> Called altars. Use them. They're not there just to look nice. These are places where we can fall on our face and ask God for help. And I need that help. I need that help. And he also took off his sandals, didn't he? Remember, that's something that Moses did at the burning bush, right? I think it's neat that God is about to remove a wicked, wicked, wicked nation and group of people, the Canaanites. But before He removes the Canaanites, He tells His tool, Joshua, to remove His sandals. If we're going to go to battle with Jesus... We must remember this is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness in high, high places. Demonic. It's a demonic fight. We must remove our sandals to show that we are standing on holy ground, that God is with us. He's our weaponry. Not our own wisdom, devices, but the Spirit. You say, that's not real clear about what I need to do. Well, you have to ask Him. He's your commanding officer, not me. But you better be about something. We all want to act after something like this. Be led by the Spirit and act. Yes. Hey, get a group of people together and let's do it together. Have you fallen at the commander's feet? If you haven't, now's your chance. We all need to. You see, the walls of Jericho was big, but Jesus was greater than Jericho. And He used a fellow named Joshua. The walls that we face are great, but He wants to use you. Who would come and fall on their face before our commander this morning. As our music team comes, I'm going to ask you to do just that. We all need to receive some messages here from the one who is in charge of us. And then we need to say, yes, Lord. Amen.